This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Shapeshift.io. With no account or signup required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell Litecoin, Dogecoin, Darkcoin, and other leading cryptocurrencies. Go to Shapeshift.io to instantly convert all coins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And my name is Brian Fabian Crane. Uh, we're here today with uh, Tim Swanson. Tim Swanson is uh, well known in the Bitcoin community as the man who sees the glass uh, half empty. Uh, <laughs> he's written a lot of articles about Bitcoin and I, I remember um, reading some of them a long time ago, uh, often having a very critical opinion of Bitcoin. But he was, I think for a long time, he was sort of the one voice that seemed to argue well that maybe things aren't so rosy. And it seems like in the recent month, we have more and more come up with conversations that we sort of questioned some of the assumptions that we've been having about Bitcoin. So it's really exciting that we have Tim on today to dive into a lot of the things he's been, he's been writing about. So thanks for joining us today, Tim. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So we wanted to start off by asking you uh, just how you got into Bitcoin and, and what has what your journey has been in this space. You know, I'm a, I'm a paid stooge of, of the banking class. So they, you know, they, they just give me money and I just jumped, jumped into it. So, uh, no, so uh, I, was, uh, I was out in China and I built a couple different mining machines just to test it out. In fact, uh, my wife, before she was my wife, she was, she was my girlfriend and... Uh, she, she's a chip designer. When she first saw me building these these rigs, she's like, what are you doing with, with these chips I designed? Because she apparently was on one of the Radeon teams that was designing some of these GPUs. Uh, so yeah, I was pretty enthusiastic, uh, much more bullish uh, a couple years ago. And then um, over time, um, there was a number of different things I came across that uh, uh, swayed me to, to look at it a little bit differently. Um, starting really uh, a year ago, about there was an article by, I think it was... Ken Griffith, he wrote uh, Bitcoin, Jack of all trade and master of none. And it was, I think he was actually pushing part of the products that he was making, but he, he made out a couple of interesting points, including like transaction costs and stuff like that. And, and then at this stage, you became more interested in Bitcoin. You started writing uh, yourself or? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I moved back from China uh, a year ago with my wife um, and we were both looking at different things to uh, to get back involved with, uh, I mean, she's a chip designer, so she was already doing that, but I was looking to see what, what kind of new, new space, uh, had some potential. And, uh, I did a lot of, uh, research and compiled it into a book, uh, called great, uh, great chain of numbers. It was just about smart contracts and stuff. Um, and then after that, I, I was actually somewhat disappointed after I'd written that because I'd heard all this promise and potential of these, this technology, but there was really no, use case like and everyone's like oh use case will come well maybe it will uh maybe it's just you know 20 years down the road uh but uh i'm joking i don't think it's there's 20 year wait time but the uh over over the summer um i started doing a lot of uh, uh correspondence with a couple of people uh, jonathan levine he's out there in the uk uh dave hudson actually a lot of british people robert sams um who who are actually looking at statistics it uh suggested uh, that, that things weren't quite going the, the way the narrative was um, on Reddit. And uh, I ended up putting together uh, another book in August. Uh, it's called uh, The Anatomy of a Money-Like Informational Commodity. That's not really my own title. There was actually a paper earlier in the year saying, hey, how can we classify what Bitcoin is? And uh, the way they classified it, and I'm not saying it is the correct way, but they called it a malik, a money-like informational commodity. And uh, along the way, I ended up uh, becoming um, business development over at Melodic, um, which is an asset exchange out in China, and then um, I'm also an advisor, disclosure to, to Hyperledger. So uh, still involved in the space. I'm not anti-Bitcoin like some people like to say I am. I'm very familiar with how it works. I, I work daily with people who really love Bitcoin, uh, including the people who you know would take the narrative on on Bitcoin on, on Reddit Bitcoin. So, but yeah, I think it's a uh, it's good to have those voices and and it's interesting also personally that i feel i've grown more skeptical over the last year of, of the chance that bitcoin will actually succeed and succeed on the level that uh, a lot of people think it will and it's 
it's an interesting it's an interesting experience right if you if you like the, the more you learn about it the more skeptic uh, the more you see the weaknesses so it, it's I, I don't know to what extent that is um i would say a common experience and or to what extent it's not sure you have overhype in a lot of spaces like in, we had that with clean tech there was a, a clean tech bubble uh started 10 years ago you had a passionate group of uh, effectively with our environmentalists that uh, built this organic groundswell of enthusiasm. They got VCs to, to buy into it. And you had a peak and then you had a drop off. I'm not saying that Bitcoin will face the same issue, but I'm, we've seen this historically, you know, uh, in many different segments. So it's not, yeah, not, we can't necessarily single out uh, Bitcoin. And, and it's not to, to even lament, uh, you know, over overzealous investors. Like, look, to be fair, VCs only can dedicate 5, 10% of their, their portfolio or their time towards any one particular segment because they're supposed to be diversified. That's what the LPs want. So uh, aside from a few uh, of these accelerators that are Bitcoin only, you do have, you know, VCs that have to focus their attention on other things. And, uh, you know, maybe they just haven't had a chance to, to fully digest um, the rest of, of the ecosystem that's being developed, or maybe they haven't looked at some of these, the actual costs. Like, I know, I know you, you've, you've talked about mining with, with Vitalik, talked about it with Robert Sams, uh, even with Preston in the last month. Uh, but look, B Bitcoin transactions were not to be designed to be cheap. Uh, it's just the opposite. It was intentionally designed to be inefficient effectively, to make it expensive to disrupt and censor and modify. The, the selling point, you know, six years ago wasn't Bitcoin transactions are super cheap. It was if, if you could get around trusted trans uh, third parties, uh, you get rid of uh, you get around their mediation costs. Therefore, it's uh, uh, it's a competitive com to compete with. Um, "Quote unquote centralized institutions." In practice, that hasn't bared out. Like, <laughs> like we, we know it's in order to do decentralization and civil protection attack uh, you, uh, prevention, you have to uh, you have to pay some money, and that money is is the seniority reward. And we know that the, the true cost of, of mining is basically the marginal cost to hash a block, because the block is what contains the transactions. And without being able to process and, and protect those blocks from uh, any kind of attack from a malicious attacker, uh, the, uh, the, the, the network goes to zero, the, the, the value goes to zero. But we, we know based on that calculation, the cost of a transaction is actually about 10 bucks or 15. Maybe, maybe that will change. Maybe true volume will go up at some point, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the case today. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, that's one thing where I did sort of take issue with uh, that comparison, you know, because I, th I don't think you, uh, I think the mining reward, you can't really count into the cost of transactions. Um, I mean, it, at least it's not the marginal cost of a transaction, right? Which is kind of the maybe more interesting part. But although in the long run, of course, um, it, it will be interesting to what extent um, transaction fees can make up for. But just briefly, uh, Sebastian, I'm curious about you. What has your experience been? Like, how has your view of the potential of Bitcoin evolved over the past year? Uh, well, that's a really good question, Brian. My view <laughs> has evolved. In, no, I'm, I'm kidding because I just heard a Freakonomics uh, episode where uh, all about responding to questions by saying uh, that's a really good question to defer the actual answer. Uh, <laughs> um, no, my, my my view has sort of shifted from uh, perhaps a, uh, a naive uh, position that this was going to take over the world to somewhat more realistic views that it's much more nuanced than that, uh, that uh, there are many other things at play, uh, that uh, it's not, you know, so I mean, we can probably get into this first topic that we have here in the rundown, but, you know, the to the moon, like we're not going to accept anything, but like total world domination of Bitcoin versus like Bitcoin could be a niche or could be complementary to a lot of other you know, monetary systems. Uh, I think at some conference I heard someone talk about uh, monetary diversity uh, is probably more of what we're going to uh, go towards. Probably more realistic anyway. Yeah. Tim, I saw you mentioned when we were discussing topics for the show, uh, the idea that Bitcoin could attain this niche status. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, we have these people talking about this binary existence. Bitcoin's going to go to zero or a million or something like that. Like, there's almost no discussion in the middle 
Um, and that could be just because they're invested in underwater and they hope that, you know, it pulls out or something like that. Like, I think that for, for what, it, what it's worth, by the way, I don't own any coins of any kind whatsoever, so I'm not here pumping anything. But I, and I think it'd, it'd be good if these people, especially in media, disclose. You know, oh, you, you don't own any Bitcoin? No, not at all. Uh. So. <laughs> that's interesting I, I remember also talking with Preston like uh, at the Bitcoin conference in Amsterdam and he was like I've never owned any Bitcoins but which uh, I, thought was I did though I mean I, I did mining like I'm not anti yeah. I just you know, it's just not something I want to be exposed to right now and it's not because I'm uh, think it's horrible again I, I think in the long run this is going to be a tradable asset I don't think it's going to be I don't think hyper Bitcoinization in, in, in these these fan fictions will ever take place. I mean, that doesn't even, there's no logical, it's a non sequitur to, to get to that point. Like, like, will maple syrup go to the moon or will it fall to zero? Are towels going <laughs> to, we have all, like, oh, this look in your apartment, you know, I'm just, you know, I could just cite off all these different things. You know, none of these, be, like, my cereal didn't become a, you know, a multi-trillion dollar uh, industry. <laughs> like, it, this, and I think setting people up for failure. Like, if, if we're going to have massive burnout, if, if all you're doing is going around on the streets and trying to get people in to saying, hey, you're going to be the new 1%, you're going to be the new wealthy elite with your citadels and your yachts and your islands, it, it's setting, it's, it's, it's over-promising and effectively under-delivering if it doesn't get to that. And we have, uh, you know, in front of us, um, you know, Android phones, and this came from Linux. And, you know, 15 years ago, um, you had a whole group of people saying, oh, desktop Linux is going to destroy Windows and destroy everything. And, they, you know, they were very sincere, very genuine. They weren't trying to scam anyone. But at the end of the day, most consumers wanted an OS and not a hobby. And the same thing with, with Bitcoin is most people want a currency and not a hobby. And, you know, if you have to spend, you know, an hour a day tracking, you know, most people don't want to have to spend an hour a day, you know, worrying about fluctuations and when to buy and sell, you know, for, to buy their gasoline or to buy, you know, use their bitcoins to buy laundry detergent or something like that. I saw, I saw one thing you wrote somewhere. It's like, uh, and, and I thought this is a very, uh, a very nice quote. Is that yeah? People want, you know, people want money. They want to pay for something. They don't want a new hobby. So. <laughs> yeah, and, and they expect the people to do this in the developing world. People in the developing world have different areas of like there's something called Maslow's hierarchy of needs and wants. And you know, at the very bottom, when you go to these developing countries, uh, like I, I lived in a really poor part of China. Uh, it was called Anhui Province, and the average salary there was like 500 bucks a month. And you know, the based on um, what's it called, Engel's Law, like in the as a country develops, you spend less money on food and more money on on discretionary items. And in China, I believe that the, the, the Engels law in terms of like how much you spend on food, it's like 28% of, where in the US it's like 10%. So not only do we have more money to spend uh, on, on healthier food, or sorry, we have more money to, to spend on other things, but we also could buy food for less and so on. So like these people in developing countries that spend like half their their uh, their wages on on their needs, they don't, number one, have the, the money to, to necessarily buy Bitcoins and then get wiped out. They don't have that kind of cushion. And number two, they don't have, like, it's like not, not like they're going to wake up the next day and like, oh, you know, I hate my local currency. I'm going to buy Bitcoin. Like, the the on-ramping educational profits. Like, it's like, I gave this example. Uh, I was at a conference uh, in Singapore and somebody's like, you know, we should tell more people about the white paper. I was like, are you kidding me? You, you don't go around, like, you don't need to have to read the set Boeing 747 schematics to realize that the Boeing uh, airplanes provide utility. I, you know, I get on airplanes like the A320 or whatever. I don't have to read what it's, how it's built in order to realize it provides utility and value for me. And if, if, if that's our main sales page is this brochure that some guy wrote six years ago, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that's the best way to market it, especially to developing countries. I, I like the analogy that you made to, uh, to open source software. And, you know, perhaps we can expect something similar to what happened to Linux in effect is, I mean, did, Linux didn't develop, the, the proliferation of Linux or Unix-based systems didn't develop through Linux desktop operating system. It developed through Android uh, open, you know, open source pro project, iOS, to a certain extent, Mac OS. And so companies, uh, private companies effectively have taken- Web servers. Web servers as well, yeah. Uh, but that, I mean, you could argue, has always been the case. But uh, effectively, private companies have taken those open source projects and made commercial products with them. So, you know, perhaps we can expect to see something similar to that happen uh, with Bitcoin or with cryptocurrencies in general. Absolutely. Like, look, you have, it's, it's ironic. You have thousands of man hours going into producing this code, whether it's this free open source stuff 15 years ago or Bitcoin today, um, by these people who really um, are anti establishment figures. 
But what ends up happening in practice is because it's all public good stuff, there's, you know, funding issues in order like going to the which model, Red Hat, Mozilla, you know, which which model you're supposed to build. Maybe at the end of things, the people who benefit the most are, as you say, these private institutions or or governments. I mean, look, 15, 20 years ago when Phil Zimmerman was doing the PGPs, you know, fight, I don't think any of those guys expected that the Chinese government would create what's effectively called, you know, the Great Firewall uh, the, the biggest filter in the world using some of this technology that these, this open source community made. It's just, you know, the, the, the double-edged sword there. You know, obviously, uh, they probably would have created this uh, software somehow in, in China, regardless of how they did the free open source stuff did. But it just, uh, we, we see this with government agencies in the U.S. or elsewhere. That, uh, if, if, you, if you make it about politics, you probably, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it's the, the, the smartest way to, to gain traction, at least uh, in the long run. I'm not saying it won't work out for these uh, these very partisan people in the Bitcoin space, but uh, I, I think that uh, they're going to find out the hard way that financial institutions, if, if there's any margins to improve, uh, financial institutions will just incorporate the technology um, and throw away the stuff that they don't need, including the political ideology. So if you talk about a niche case, is there something specific you have in mind uh, or... Sure. So, like, you had Robert Sams on, like, I guess two weeks ago, and he's got a new uh, company called Zero Clear. I, I, I guess he hasn't spoken too much because it's not quite public. It's still kind of semi-stealth. But the, the general idea with some of this, and I know um, there's maybe two or three other, you know, stealth projects that have you know, contacted me or some people I know, basically, that are, are trying to take some of this consensus ledger technology um, and then cobble it together, uh, building a stack uh, for enterprises for uh, private financial institutions. And again, you don't need necessarily proof of work to do that. I'm not to bash proof of work. I think Dave Hudson um, makes an interesting case for for some of the business use cases for it. Maybe he's someone you could have on your show. Uh, Listeners might be interested in it's hashingit.com. That's his website. Uh, But uh, Robert Sams is doing the zero clear thing, doing uh, derivatives clearing, uh, using uh, bits and pieces of this overall tech. Um, It's actually... um, in, in some in some ways uh, similar to what Ethereum is doing, but uh, I, again I can't spill the beans too much because then it defeats the purpose of <laughs> being a stealth business, right? But uh, yeah, I, I do think that there are, are are actual applications that you could take this and that don't require it to be Bitcoin based blockchains. I'd like to hear more about this consensus as a service uh, idea. Uh, how how do you uh, then you know ensure that this ledger is trustless if you don't have blockchain and proof of work? Okay. I'll be honest, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too. There's no such thing as really as trustless. It's really trust minimizing. Like Bitcoin itself isn't trustless. We have to, our third party is miners. And the idea six years ago is, hey, there'd be so many miners or so many validators effectively that there's no way that collusion or abuse could take place. But as we've seen, that has kind of narrowed down. And it narrowed down in terms of consolidation and centralization, uh, primarily because it's it's rational to do. If you want to, if you want to smooth out your your risk curve or uh, your volatility curves, you, you need to uh, aggregate capital uh, effectively with these data warehouses and so forth. Um, so I, I don't think that uh, most businesses care about cypherpunk solutions, like in terms of, they're not cypherpunks. Like at, at the end of the day, Bitcoin was designed to solve problems for cypherpunks, uh, problems for people who were doing, uh, you know, uh, Poker stars, you know, I'm not saying that, that Satoshi was a poker star guy, but, you know, he originally wanted to build like a marketplace with a token within it. And in fact, version 0.1 had that built in. Anyways, my, my point is, is if you could get rid of some of this stuff that uh, that Bitcoin uh, makes it costly with in terms of proof of work, if, if you have a network uh, or a consortium or a, a group of institutions that... Uh, that trust each other and know each other, you could use proof of stake and or uh, even a simple database. I'm not saying that that is the solution. Obviously, each business has different needs. But uh, yeah, you, you don't necessarily need civil protection attack uh, for, for some of these applications. You just need uh, block ordering that, that is cryptographically verifiable. So I know um, Zucky Menyon from SkewChain, his phrase that he uses, crypt, uh, cryptographic primitives, uh, when he's talking about how you can integrate blockchains with supply chains. And again, I'm not saying any of these ideas will be successful, but we're looking at it. And that's why uh, I see the space as consensus as a service uh, going forward and not Bitcoin as a service. I, I, find it, I find it interesting that you bring that up. And I did sort of ask um, President Byrne about this as well, because my idea has always been, and my understanding, 
that you know the sort of fundamental breakthrough of Bitcoin is uh, proof of work and and using proof of work to achieve this like you know distributed consensus and have this blockchain. And when you do some and and it seems like that the the powerful thing there is the decentralization. So when you get rid of that. I, I, I'm just curious and sort of skeptical whether then this whole blockchain uh, design and ledger design still makes sense or whether then not, uh, you know, the most efficient thing is just database, right? Sure, yeah. So you have the spectrum, right? Fully decentralized, which would be, I guess, Bitcoin six years ago, not Bitcoin today. And then uh, this like a Mongo database, you know, or Oracle database or IBM database, something decentralized. What, what, can you do something in between that is effective for certain business use cases? So, again, if you know who your nodes are, if you know who you're validating with, that is a, a semi-trusted network. There's still ways to use, like, for example, proof of stake. You could use something called delegated proof of stake. And, by the way, guys, I, I understand there's lots of arguments about whether proof of stake is stable or not. I am not saying proof of stake is, is the solution. It is a proposed solution that many people are looking at. Um, and obviously, people who hate it have a vested interest to hate it because <laughs> they own a lot of Bitcoin. So if this is, if something else comes out about it, then you know they uh, they'll 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 lose the value. They go going back to you know they won't be to the moon as, as they'd hope. But anyways, the the basic idea with delegated proof of stake or having these these validated nodes in in, in different areas is you you could just take maybe a hundred NGOs, you put a validating node inside one of these things, and you'd have to convince like the Red Cross and Blue Shield and all these different, or I guess Blue Shield's HMO, it's not an NGO. But if you, you take these different uh, NGOs, like United Way, uh, you say, hey, can you run this delegated validator? Uh, in to, 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 to make that collusion take place, you would you know, roughly have to convince 50, 50 of these nodes to, to collude or something like that, which would be much more distributed than Bitcoin today. Bitcoin today is only, you know, like Vitalik said, it's basically a 5 of 10 multi-sig that issues a Coinbase. So, uh, you know, it's 10 pools versus 100. I think 100 is a little bit more distributed. We already know who the pools are. We know who works there. Well, at least 85% of the hash rate. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think that in practice the, the proof of work uh, uh, became the decentralized network that he'd hoped. Um, and I don't think you can re-decentralize it uh, in, the, in the way that they're trying. Because, look, if it, what happens with... The, the, the security of the network is proportion, directly proportional to the, the actual token value of market. So if you have a $200 token, miners are going to destroy $200 worth of capital to secure it um, every you know 10 minutes or whatever, times 25 or whatever the, the block reward would be. Anyways, if, if, if that is the case, then uh, what's happened, when people are like, oh, you know, the, the good fall, the, the fall in price is going to re-decentralize Bitcoin right now. Actually, it's not. All it's going to do is squeeze out marginal players and allow the most competitive to, to stay around. So survival of the fittest effectively. And the fittest are those who are the most uh, effective with uh, efficiently uh, managing electricity or administrative costs. So like Bitfury, their, their cost of production effectively is like $180. So they're still kind of marginally profitable at this point. That's like a $20, $20 profit window right now. Uh, whereas everyone else has to get off get offline. Um, there's obviously some other players like in China who have some sweet land land deals because they had they know some you know governors and stuff like that. Uh, but my, my point is is in practice, Bitcoin did not stay decentralized because it's more effective as, as Dave Hudson has shown due to the Poisson process to 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 pool your capital together and scale it uh, in in a way that, that gives you guaranteed results. And DPoS uh, again. I'm not saying it is the solution, but it's at least more decentralized than Bitcoin would be. Well, the problem with you know the example that you just gave, where NGOs would uh, effectively be the nodes, I mean, the problem with that is that you have to give them the trust, and that is subjective. You know, you could consider that uh, NGOs are not to be trusted. I'm not saying that's the case, but uh, you're you're adding a degree of subjectivity there that perhaps is undesirable. Sure. Well, it, let's look at it this way. It's harder to throw an NFL game, an American football game, because in order to throw it, you have to collude with uh, a ton of different people, whereas boxing is much easier to collude. You just have to get one guy or, or, or the ref or the uh, one of the players to, to be the fall guy. You just have to convince one of the people or one of the judges. It's much easier to, to, to spoof or, or throw a game or a match that way. Um, and, and same thing with, with Bitcoin. Um, you know, when you have 10 effective miners... Uh, it's much easier to get them to collude, or you have to trust them uh, in the in the long run, not to you know d 
do censorship of transactions. Whereas if you have a hundred nodes or a thousand nodes at these different NGOs um, or financial institutions, then you know again what what, what if, if we're looking at it from uh, from the tradition like we've we've seen in the last six years, yeah maybe you don't want to deal with the Red Cross, but Again, I'm not saying the Red Cross is going to be involved with this. I'm just saying if you have 100 different entities um, or 100 different institutions, um, to that is just topologically <laughs> more decentralized than 10 dudes uh, in, in, in Finland or, or in Ukraine where, where Ghash and some of these other facilities are like with the theory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think in the end, right, the decentralization is the most important part when it comes to security in that way, right? So like obviously with Bitcoin and the mining pools, there, there is an issue there. Now, maybe there's a way, you know, when we, like, for example, Ethereum, when, you know, they're looking at if it's really just CPU uh, mineable, maybe then that will work, that it actually stays decentralized, or maybe with proof of stake, it's possible to, to achieve that. But it is, I think it's, it's obviously true that right now there is a problem in that it's very expensive, the whole Bitcoin mining, and it's not very decentralized, right? And it's not very secure in that way. You have all the costs of decentralization without really any of its benefits anymore. Right. Um, and you, you've created centralization without any of its benefits, which would be time, efficiency, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's kind of like the worst of both worlds. And I'm not saying that to be mean, but, like, again, Bitcoin was, was designed, and proof of work was, uh, being thrown into it was designed for specific purposes. If you already know the nodes, if everyone's already somewhat nominally trusted, you don't need necessarily proof of work anymore. You need some other block ordering scheme or some other way to, to move uh, transactions in a cryptographically verifiable manner. Uh, again, I'm not saying that uh, proof of stake is a solution. I'm not saying hyperledger is a solution. I'm not saying any of the things that, that have been proposed are the solutions, but uh, there's more, more than one way to skin a cat and Bitcoin isn't it. Well, that's all very interesting. And well, perhaps we can talk about Hyperledger in just a second. Um, I'd like to know more about how that works. Uh, but first, let's talk about Shapeshift, uh, our sponsor, Shapeshift, of course. And uh, Shapeshift is the fast and easy way to uh, trade altcoins. So um, we've been talking about Shapeshift for quite a while. And uh, and the, the what we're going to do today is a little different because we want to show you the uh, Shapeshift Lens uh, Google Chrome extension. Uh, we've mentioned it a couple times before, and um, and we want to show you how that works. So, as you as you know, so if you've ever wanted to buy and sell altcoins, uh, you know you have to go through an exchange. Shapeshift allows Shapeshift allows you to do that without having to go through an exchange. You go to the website; they've got some sort of a conversion tool there. It looks a little bit like Google Translate for cryptocurrencies. Uh, one side you have the currency you want to convert, and the other side you have the currency you want to convert to. You just put your um, your address, and in a few minutes, you can uh, you can trade effectively, convert an, an altcoin into another, and it takes a couple of seconds. But what if you want to send um, uh, some uh, some bitcoins to someone, and you know you might have some Dogecoin? Well, they have a great Google Chrome extension that allows you to do that right from the website. So let me go ahead and share my screen here, so I can show you how that works. There we go. So I've uh, went to our uh, support page on our website, on our, uh, our tips page, and I've got the Shapeshift Lens um, uh, Chrome uh, extension installed. I can see it here in my browser that it's detected that there was a Bitcoin address on this page. So if I scroll down here, and I go to Bitcoin, so I see that there's a Bitcoin address, and I see the little uh, Fox icon show up next to my Bitcoin address. So if I go ahead and click that, I'll get this Shapeshift Lens uh, pop-up and it says pay with, and right here I can say I want to pay with Dogecoin. And there we go. Um, so it's already filled in the destination Bitcoin address. I'll say I want to tip, so I want to say maybe like 0 0.01, so one millibit. Pay. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it appears that there's an error. Maybe if I if I uh, if I refresh it, it might just be my browser. Okay, so there's an error. Um, well, uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, we'll have to let them know about that. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, so it, when, when this does work, you could expect it to work somewhat like Shapeshift, um, where you just uh, have a QR code and you would send the money to that QR code, and it would <laughs> and it would uh, send the uh, the Bitcoin uh, in exchange for your Dogecoin. Yeah, I'm sure they, I'm sure they'll have it fixed again, uh, you know, within the day or something. But it's a it's a great way you can kind of use any currency, and you know, you can as a I always thought this was going to happen, right? I always thought, uh, for example, payment processes would just take um, any currency because it's pretty uh, trivial for them to trade it. Like as a merchant, you don't have, um, you don't really care. And and Shapeshift sort of makes it possible uh, to do it on the other side, right? So that you can do it on your side. Yeah, there was. I think there was a time where we were speculating that uh, you know most payment processors would just integrate all. You know, most most altcoins, but they're not doing that. I mean, right now, there's no reason to do it because there's no adoption and nobody uses these currencies, right? Exactly. But if they were going to be used, that's what you would see, right? And and Shapeshift kind of makes it possible for you as a, as a user to do it sort of on your own right now, at least when the extension is working again. <laughs> right, we'll have to let them know about that. Uh, yeah, so they accept uh, they accept a whole bunch of altcoins. So Bitcoin, Blackcoin, Bitcoin Dark, Dogecoin, Darkcoin, Feathercoin, Litecoin, Nubits, Namecoin, NXT, Peercoin. The list goes on. Quark, Redcoin, and Ripple. And uh, so you can convert any one of those coins uh, into any other one of those coins. So the possibilities are well, I haven't I haven't calculated the possibilities, but they are numerous. So Shapeshift is a fast and easy way to, to uh, convert your altcoins and no accounts needed. Your personal information stays uh, protected and you only pay a small upfront fee that uh, isn't in integrated in the, uh, in the transaction amount. So head over to shapeshift.io, give it a try, tell us what you think. And we'd like to thank them for the support of Epicenter Bitcoin. So uh, we've been talking about consensus as a service and, uh, and Tim has mentioned Hyperledger, which is a project he's involved in, I think as an advisor. Uh, I've heard of it, uh, but I don't really know exactly what they do, although we did have a quick look at the website. Can you, um, can you explain to us what Hyperledger is? Sure, yeah. So it's an open source project, uh, and the idea is, is you, in order to be a node on the network, you need to take out an SSL from a certificate authority. So it's not fully decentralized, but it's not fully centralized. And uh, instead of having coins, uh, you just have heuristics. You just have blacklisting, whitelisting. Uh, just like spam, uh, spam mechanisms of Gmail. Like, there's no Gmail coin, and yet you're able to still filter out and get most of uh, you know the signal to noise ratio is pretty good. You get most of the mail you want. Whereas like in your regular mailbox that you your, your meet space in real life, real life, uh, you still get a lot of spam, and those are already marked with money. If somebody actually paid money or got bulk rates or whatever, the U.S. Postal Service is like the largest spam producer in the world, or at least transmitter. So and yet people pay for it. So the idea is okay. How can we do some of the useful things with Bitcoin? How can we do tra uh, asset tracking in a cryptographically verifiable way, um, but not have to worry about coins and being vendor have a vendor lock in with needing a uh, particular you know Bitcoin or whatever the, the altcoin is? And again, I'm not saying they'll be successful, but uh, it's a it's an interesting uh, way of d different approach. The their consensus mechanisms called uh, something called uh, practical Byzantine fault tolerance. It's a 15 year old. Algorithm, it's been tested. Uh, Paxos is, uh, is, is the actual mechanism it's done with. Um, again, I'm not saying it uh, is equivalent in terms of uh, secure. Uh, the 51% or secure as Bitcoin is, there's a spectrum of, of security. Um, but it's, it's not designed to be on an untrusted network where Bitcoin was. So if, if you already know some of the nodes, or at least you know some of the people, then you're on a, in a nominally trusted uh, enterprise or inter enterprise network. Is, uh, is Paxos is really the Cassandra, no? Uh, you know, that's, that's part of it. Like, uh, you know, we, I, we could go into this. I, I, I'm not, I, I didn't really know anything about databases, but we did have a talk at our Bitcoin meetup uh, a few, a while ago by uh, a guy named Trent, uh, who does a startup called Ascribe in Berlin. Like they do some, um, basically a blockchain stuff with digital artwork. And uh, he is, comes from like a machine learning, etc. background, not from a cryptocurrency background. So, but he was very familiar with um, Paxos and uh, Cassandra and some of these database technologies that actually have their own consensus systems. So he was like, why? And, and of course, in terms of scalability, they're just insanely better than a Bitcoin could ever be. You're so judgmental. Gosh, why are you so skeptical, man? <laughs> 
Um, so he was like, why isn't someone doing uh, a cryptocurrency based on that? Wouldn't that work? I'm not sure. So it's interesting that it seems like that's e exactly the direction Hyperledger is going in. Sure. And there's, there's some other people you could, you could talk to, too, that are working on some interesting products like Tendermint. Uh, they're doing a different approach. Pebble's doing another approach. Um, Hyperdex, which is a, is a cool uh, database software from uh, Eamon, uh, Eamon Sire. He's a professor at Cornell. Um, uh, I've heard really good things about that. Again, uh, when we, people need to look at what are what are the actual business requirements, what are the consumer requirements, and and how do these different technologies fit into that? Not everyone has a cypherpunk problem. Not everyone has a <laughs> has a need to get around trusted third parties. If if you want to, go for it. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, it, it, consumers seem to want to have insurance, assurance. Uh, you know, customer service. I mean, if you wanted to recreate Bitcoin, just go to Visa, fire their whole anti-fraud team, fire their other metrics teams and, and get rid of the customer service and you've got Bitcoin, but it's only faster. So like if, if, if you want <laughs> to, to replicate any of these, you know, useful networks with value, you have to, you have to add on these different things that the customers actually want. And uh, therefore you just become a very expensive PayPal. So Hyperledger, it's not because it's not a coin, it's not a Bitcoin alternative, really, right? So it, it, is that sort of a, a software as a service thing where, you know, you would basically sell that to, let's say, a consortium of banks to, to do the settlement between them? Or can you run us through an example? Yeah, it's basically, if you want to track a particular asset, you could design the, uh, you could uh, program it to be any, any particular asset. I don't want to say it's currency. Obviously, everyone talks about currency, but uh, I, I think that the, the use cases that the, the team is primarily looking at right now is equities. And uh, basically, and again, I'm not saying that they will be adopted by lots and lots of banks. It'd be cool if they did, but, uh, or, or something like it. Uh, but like the way, the way the current system works with equity clearing or securities clearing and settlement is it takes several days, not because the banks hate each other and want to get lots of money. It's because there's hundreds of ledgers that, that DTC, a depository trust company, they're the ones who basically maintain the ledger in which all these other sub-ledgers are based off of. And if there's a way to, to somehow allow the percolation process, the movement uh, and, and title transfer to take place much faster, uh, then you would obviously reduce the role of systemic, uh, systemic uh, domino effects and so forth. Um, again, I'm not saying Hyperledger will be that, but Bitcoin isn't even, you know, there's, there's no role for Bitcoin to do that. The 10 minute window, you know, that's just not even, uh, I know that's faster than two to three days. <laughs> People are like, yeah, let's, let's clear it. But, uh, it, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're reliant on anonymous miners. And if you talk to securities or the, you know, big, big, large banks involved with settlement, they don't want to trust anonymous miners. They want to be able to trust somebody else, an actual entity. I think that's something that's really, really interesting that I feel like I've seen come up again and again, uh, especially in the last few months, it, it, projects that view the, the decentralization and the anonymity of Bitcoin mining more as a liability than uh, an advantage, which I find is, is really interesting. And it goes so much against the, um, the original idea of Bitcoin, I think. Which, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm not, you know, I think, uh, I think there's, it's quite true that in many use cases, uh, you just can't sell Bitcoin to existing institutions because it's just too much, like too hard to predict. There's no one to complain to. There's no room for error. It's, they can't control it, right? So I understand it. But it's also, it's really, really far away, I think, from the original vision. Sure. It, it, you're shoehorning uh, a, a certain product into all these universal clown cars, basically. That's, that's the example I use. Is, like, clown cars can move. You can fit a lot of clowns in it. But it's not particularly safe or effective. And that's kind of what's happened with Bitcoin. Everyone's just cobbling tons of stuff on Bitcoin. Or, or if, if, the example I used a couple months ago was, like, Superman. Like, if you look at, like, what Superman's powers were, like, in the 30s, very different than they are today. Like, he could only jump really high and, and he was changed to be able to fly because cartoonists didn't want to spend all day on the 20 minute cartoon having him jump. They wanted him just to get to the place. And so that's, that's kind of what happened with, with Bitcoin is it started out being a certain solution to a certain problem. And, and now it could cure cancer and end wars and do all this other stuff that it, it's not going to, it's just, it's just, it's just creating a over promise and under delivering. So. 
So how, because I, I played around with this a little bit, like I installed the command line tools. Uh, so there's a server and a client. So in order to become a node, I guess you have to install the server on your system? I believe so. You, you definitely need to get an SSL. I, uh, again, I'd like to talk to you about that, but I don't want to be seen pushing the product. I think I think the developers would be much better guests to, to talk than just the, the simple lowly advisor. Hmm. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's really easy to, to install, uh, at least on a Mac it is. And uh, you can create an asset and like just with one line of code. So it's, I mean, it's a it's a cool idea and, and definitely something that, that uh, you know that is uh, interesting to. I mean, what, what I what I like about this is you know it, it's it's easy to get started, right? I mean, you just have like your lines of code here on this on the um, on the homepage. You can install uh, the command line tools and get started right away. Sure. Make I mean it makes it easy for anybody to actually get their hands dirty. Yeah, absolutely. Sure, but don't you know if you're supporting this, it's going to destroy. Uh, if you're if you're supporting anything but Bitcoin, it's going to destroy Bitcoin. Like it's uh, <laughs> one of the funny things about the the Bitcoin maximalist is they have no like review mirror of history. Like Mercedes Benz, like Benz was the largest car company in 1899. It still exists, but the competition didn't destroy the whole automobile industry. Same thing with flight. Uh, same thing with like credit cards themselves. Diners Club was the first credit card. Uh, that came out like in 1950, and it was later acquired by Discover. Like just just because you're the first mover, just because you've invested a lot, doesn't mean you're the you're you're supporting the the platform that that will win. I mean, web crawler, Palm, Atari, Friendster. I mean, Palm was actually bought by HP. So just because you're the first mover, uh, you, you see this with Google. Google was not the first search engine; it was like the 15th. Um, iPod was not the first MP3 player; it was like the ninth. I've written about this before. So, like, uh, again, I'm not saying Hyperledger version one will be it. Uh, maybe there'll be something else. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think that competition is really good. Um, we, we saw that with, with Linux itself. One of the first distributions was, was Slackware. came out in 1993. It still exists, even though there's hundreds of other distributions. There wasn't, like, this massive destruction of, of, uh, of the industry. It didn't just stop because of all this competition. So, yeah, I think... Uh, these maximalists uh, should really uh, look back at history to see, you know, empirically uh, how competition helps uh, and doesn't actually hinder. Yeah, no, I think um, it's it's an interesting and a little bit strange argument we sometimes see, right? I, I personally, at least in my view, that the idea that we should sort of rally behind and one thing and. And at this point, just kind of unrealistic, right? Yeah, it's definitely unrealistic. Because I mean, because there's so much going well, on. Well, it's, it's, it's open source. I mean, if, if it's useful, somebody's going to fork it. <laughs> and how, how do you stop? Like, and, and again, I have nothing against Blockstream. I think they're they're very well intentioned, really smart people out to, to create real value. But at the end of the day, how are you going to convince altcoin developers to get on your platform without providing them some kind of fund? And like 21 million sounds like a lot of money, but there's like 10 altcoins that have market caps of like 10 million. And again, I'm not saying those are all liquid and, and, and so forth, but the idea is, is those developers have an incentive to continue building that product because they have money they could tap into and pay the developers or pay their own bills. Uh, unless unless uh, Blockstream does something similar, there's no way that they will build on board their competitors effectively. Uh, I mean, why would you drop everything to go work with, uh, build a chain, a, a side chain, uh, when you don't get paid for it. So I, I, I wish them good luck, and I hope that they do create value and succeed, but I, I just don't see it from a business side. Yeah, no, I, I do think the, um, getting, uh, removing the ability to do uh, crowd sales and create uh, coins that way is a huge, a huge issue. Uh, it's a huge downside, and I think, as Vitalik said, that's just something too good to, to pass up. But uh, speaking of crowd sales, can you tell us a bit about your involvement in Melodic? Because um, I think you're an altcoin exchange, right? But also quite connected with the whole decentralized application and, and app coin space. Sure, sure. So, I mean, when, when we talk about scam coins, I have to listen to these guys all the time. Like, we, we get emails and or people, you know, send me messages on Skype. Hey, check out my coin. So I, and, I, and I have my own process of, like, oh, who's... Who's a verifiable developer? And, and, and funnily enough, Satoshi probably wouldn't pass it because I want to see your face or I want to see your voice or at least somebody on your team uh, do that. And uh, again, not to single out Satoshi, whoever he or they were. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, we, we only list uh, specific assets that, that have a, a, an actual community uh, behind it, some actual developers, 
correspond uh, at least uh, on a regular basis either to the public or to us um, or to other exchanges if, if it is. And if, if you look at the list, uh, we've pretty much narrowed it down to basically the top 10, top 15 assets out there. That doesn't mean that they won't be delisted. Uh, that doesn't mean that they won't that they will succeed. Uh, again, I don't own any asset. I'm not uh, out there promoting any particular one. Uh, in fact, and, and this is a slight tangent, but look, the reason you have these different assets being made in part is in, in why I think calling these protocols is incorrect. That's not a good analogy. TCPIP is, is not the equivalent analogy because look, we, when you have a distribution of special interests, like we have with Bitcoin, like a certain amount of shareholders effectively that own the, 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 the coins or the people that, that join, they're like, oh, this, I want to, I want to have that same amount of assets. So they fork it. And then other people fork it. You see that with NXT switch to NEM and, and so like, with, with Ripple to Stellar. And again, I'm not saying that one's going to be successful or unsuccessful, but my, my point is, is the, the reason these aren't protocols is because you don't have special interest in SMTP or HTTP uh, forking it. There weren't 21 million internet packets ever just made and people just sat there and held on it, hoping that these internet packets would, would somehow become, you know, worth so much you could buy, you know, uh, islands. And it's like going to New York going to the subway and taking all those tokens and then burying them underneath your bed and thinking, oh, yes, these tokens are going to be worth a lot. New York subway is just going to make a bunch more. The utility is the actual network. Bitcoin, the actual utility is the network. It's not supposed to be the token. And uh, I think that's why these these guys who are so uh, ideological with the money supply are missing the greater point of what the actual utility was created. It's a blockchain is a utility, not the coin. There's plenty of assets and coins out there and, and fiat currencies to look at. And I think Robert Sams on your on your show two weeks ago made a beautiful uh, you know statement. It was you know a good hour uh, of discussion on this. And uh, again, I'm not saying the alts we support are actually going to be able to to incorporate the ideas Robert suggested. But uh, I think we'll continue to see uh, these different forks and different crowd sales and so forth because people just want to either fund their own development that way or because they see something that's not being done in the market that they can try to provide. But I, I actually think that that idea of, of the limited supply and you know people buying into it and then it appreciating that much was absolutely i don't think bitcoin would ever have gotten to where it is without that you know so i think that incentivization is is hugely important and i actually think that's why also robert sam's uh, proposal is so nice is because potentially you'd have the on the one hand the sort of a stable coin but on the other hand with that, the senior shares part, you still have that exact same speculative dynamic that you have with Bitcoin. And, and personally, I think that's a really, really powerful thing. So I, I think projects that um, leave that away, I mean, in some cases it can make sense, right? If you do like a B2B solution that you sell the banks and stuff, it probably doesn't make sense to have that. Um, but when you, especially when you reach a, a wide mass or giving that sort of incentivization, I think is something really powerful. It may, but like it also might attract like gamblers. Like I think the funniest quote I saw about Reddit Bitcoin was like, list, lo looking at the comments that people make every day is like peering into the mind of people who are gambling addicts. And, you know, to the moon, you know, what's the price, what's the price, what's the price? <laughs> and again, I'm not saying that, that Bitcoin would have failed. We, we can't know. We, unless we like reverse history, we, we have no idea what an alternative universe in which, you know, seniority share was integrated with Bitcoin originally. And, and that's not to, to make fun of Satoshi. Like, I, uh, I'm not to, I, I don't think he had any idea that it wouldn't be used as, a, as an actual like modern currency. People would just hold it as an actual asset or commodity instead. Uh, I, I don't think he, he, he saw that. And I'm not saying that you, you can't have a a successful project that uses something similar to a limited supply or semi-limited or however you come up with the dynamic supply. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm just saying empirically what we've seen is, uh, as, as you said, you know, uh, Robert's, Robert's examples have, uh, have borne out, or at least his, his thesis has borne out more so than the hyper Bitcoinization guys who were saying it's going to, you know, monetize and become you know millions of dollars and so forth maybe it will uh i have doubts though yeah i mean i actually wanted to get to that earlier but somehow we skipped it but when we had gary Heilman on um just recently to talk about the, the state of bitcoin report one thing we touched on was the the merchant growth and, and just sort of general adoption right and and you uh, I think you, someone else wrote a, a post on this, and I think you've been uh, sort of quoting that on, on your blog. 
who try to analyze the actual volumes or not just the number of merchants that like BitPay and, and Coinbase have signed up, but actually the volume that they're doing. And uh, can you just very briefly tell us about what this data um, showed about uh, how merchant adoption and, and perhaps more so the actual usage as a payment system is developing? Sure, yeah. Okay, so again, for starters, to quote the white paper, the, the title of it was peer-to-peer payment system, and the abstract was about payments, and the section one was about online commerce. So the whole purpose of Bitcoin was to provide a payment system, but nobody uses it really for payments, and we know that for on-chain volume. And I got a lot of, you know, the guy who got me into Bitcoin, he yells at me all consistently for saying I don't look at the data correctly. I have a new article, I, you know, I sent you guys a draft, it'll be out in about a week or so. Um, and one of the segments uh, that, that I that I look at uh, within this article is from uh, is some data from Jorge Stolfi. He's a CS professor in Brazil. Um, and what he did is he took information from WalletExplorer.com. Wallet Explorer basically identifies and doxes reused addresses. BitPay reuses addresses. We can see exactly you know how many Bitcoins they, they receive. They receive two different numbers. We would call wholesale and retail. Wholesale numbers would basically be uh, large batches of Bitcoin coming from miners, miners selling to convert to fiat. And the other ones is retail, uh, basically, you know, you or me buying something on- online uh, with like Newegg or Microsoft, one, one of the, I guess, BitPay you know, suppliers or, or, or merchants. And uh, if you add that up in aggregate, since it's all on chain, they only do like a thousand Bitcoins a day. And they've been doing that like for over you know a year. So like the, they may have... Uh, you know, they don't, they don't release public public numbers, but we do have an idea <laughs> uh, publicly because it's on the blockchain what their actual numbers are, and it hasn't grown. And I know people get angry. Oh, I've spent, I've spent. Yeah, but you're, you know, you're a marginal player, and we see the whole aggregate. So there's no there's no smoke and mirrors. We know exactly what's going on with them. Coinbase too. Um, you know, they're they have a, they publish an off chain off chain numbers, which is whatever their own internal uh, you know merchant sales are, or maybe their vault movements. It's it's unclear exactly what they might be, and it, it's been flat too. And, and this is not to say it won't take off, but we, or, or won't change. But again, we we need to look at who is the the largest holders of Bitcoin. Who are these you know people with Bitcoins? In order to use Bitcoin, you, the, the network you have to have these prepaid vouchers, like these these collectible plastic figurines. That's basically what how Bitcoin is treated by market participants. They, they treat them as these these antique spoons that they don't want to you know get rid of and that's rational they all think it's going to go to become a lot of money so the rational thing to do is to hold on to it it's not to spend it if you spend it you're not being a rational economic actor it's, it's true so and, and we see that in practice you know 70 80 percent of coins don't move for more than you know six months or so and uh and that's not to say it, it, it won't change but Again, <laughs> if you want to pay for fees in the long run, uh, it, it, it brings in, introduces all these other issues that, that didn't take place because uh, Satoshi assumed that, that fees would take over senior shares or senior if, if, if people aren't spending it, then that's not happening. And uh, in, in, we see this uh, you know, time and time again with the different charts. Uh, hopefully uh, the audience will have a chance to look at the article in a week or so. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll definitely, well, we'll link to your blog in the show notes so people can check that out and... Uh, and then they can uh, find the article there. Um, well, we're sort of towards the end of a show, but there's one one thing you forwarded us in the email that was about something I hadn't heard about, and I thought it was sounded totally crazy. And we, I talked about it with Sebastian before the show, and you were both like, "Really?" <laughs> um, so this thing is called trusted transparency. Tim, can you share what that is? Sure. So there's this effort by specific mine, miners like uh, Bitfury and Spontulis. The idea is uh, they want to create trusted nodes effectively with Bitcoin. And uh, it, you know, I talked to uh, Greg, Greg Maxwell's talked about it. He calls it smart property. Um, I met him, I guess, seven months ago at, at a Blockstream event. Um, and uh, generally, the original idea was, hey. You know, uh, what happens if specific hardware is being used to attack the network? Wouldn't it be neat if we could just, you know, get rid of that? And so you have a remote kill switch in effect. But even before that, before that idea came up, the idea was, we know these data warehouses exist. And that probably, the the, the reasons data warehousing for mining exists is because it's so much more uh, efficient to scale that way over for admin and, and operational expenses. 
which become the biggest uh, costs for, for these mining facilities. The capex actually becomes less. But anyways, the idea is, well, what if somebody broke into one of these facilities and started tampering with the hardware? Wouldn't it be neat if you could terminate that hardware with a private key? And the only way you could use that hardware is with a private key. So uh, anyway, so you've had this evolution uh, that, that, that started with being able to terminate stolen hardware to terminate 51% attacks to where now uh, basically the, the manufacturers are working with core devs to, to basically, it, it, it exists, each, each manufacturer basically has their own proof of work uh, fork, if you will, um, that allows them to run Bitcoin or be terminated. That's hardware. So, like for example, if BitFury's hardware was attacking the network, you could you could send a kill signal to terminate that specific hardware. And the reason this is important is because of sidechains. Sidechains, if it's free to, to mine sidechains, like we've seen with or to, to do merge mining, then it's also free to attack it. So the only way to secure these is to effectively uh, you know, building kill switches saying, hey, if you want to participate in the Bitcoin network, you're also going to have a, a kill switch in it. Now, they, they, they obviously have good intentions. I'm not saying they don't, but it creates a trusted scenario. That's why they call it trusted transparency. And again, I'm not saying that they won't get miners on board, but from at least the conversations I've had with some non-Bitfury, non-Spontulis uh, people, they're not interested in, in integrating because it, it introduces backdoors into their own hardware that they'd rather not have people have. So you basically have two blockchains. The Bitcoin blockchain and then the private key for the for the uh, for the hardware, and now you have to secure both. So it's much easier <laughs> to, to to make these other guys vulnerable with the, this private key. Now like, all you have to do is get on an airplane, find these core developers, or find these people that, that do this mining manufacturing, and just beat them with a wrench or you know blackmail them. And there's m many easier uh, single points of failure and, and, and vulnerabilities to that model than it was with, for example, uh, pre pre smart property uh, mining. Yeah, no, I mean, it just, just seems so crazy to me, you know, because of course, on a whole uh, number of levels, so first of all, you do trust in Bitfury, for example, or whoever, you know, manufactured, whoever holds those keys. And another risk that then arises, you know, is that a government could come and like uh, extort those people. Uh, it, it just seems to be, uh, it seems to go really strongly against the whole idea of Bitcoin. So it's really, it's bizarre to me. And it seems to me that if sidechains do require that to work, it's sort of a roundabout argument, right? You say like, oh, you want to keep Bitcoin alive because this is a decentralized thing and everything should be on Bitcoin because, you know, that's the future and we believe in Bitcoin. But then you also have to like totally undermine uh, the idea of having a purely centralized cryptocurrency or a, a decentralized cryptocurrency with something like that by controlling the hardware essentially it's it's really uh, absolutely crazy to me well ironically you'd recreate the very systems that these you know maximalists dislike which is trusted validated nodes running from either ripple or even hyperledger i mean we know where the nodes are or we have an idea of who runs the nodes and now with 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 bitcoin we will, if, if if this comes to pass again i'm not saying it will i'm just saying that this is something that they're they're quietly pushing uh, then you end up with the very system that they, they dislike, but cost you know five hundred million dollars to maintain. Exactly right. I mean, because <laughs> so you, you you don't need that proof of work anymore because there's no there's no civil, so that everyone knows each other. Yeah, no, exactly right. I mean, it's just it's so absurd because you can just uh, you really can replace it with a much much more efficient system if if you just get rid of all the mining and stuff. Sure. And this is not, a, by the way, anti-proof-of-work, anti-Bitcoin. Like, Pure Nova, my understanding, has a different way, a different approach. I'm not pumping them. I think that it'd be interesting in a couple months they're supposed to announce uh, their their look at, uh, at, at this space. Um, they took a different approach on Blockstream. Maybe they won't work to, I, I, I don't know. Uh, Dave Hudson, he, he works with them. Um, and I know, I know we're about almost out of time. Is, do we have a moment to talk about uh, remittance at all? Sure. Yeah, so uh, I know this is one thing that, that you and I we're, we're going to try and talk about. And again, the community, for whatever reason, his, his, has no idea how remittances actually work. <laughs> like, like everyone thinks that the you know, Western Union and MoneyGram have like these like 2,000% margins and stuff like that. It, at the end of the day, the, their costs are, are, are largely two things. And they have to file reports quarterly, you know, their 10K report. The two costs that they have are compliance and the physical network. And not just the physical network of, of the stores and people, but like commissions to the agents to help out with the cash network. Because, again, developing countries, they, they, 
they don't all use US dollars or euros or RMB. They have a local currency. And the same thing with Bitcoin. Like there are no merchants in these countries. Like in Kenya, there are, you know, there's not five, ten, a hundred thousand Bitcoin merchants. Uh, you go to CoinMap and you see that. So they have to cash out somehow. So Bitcoin doesn't solve a problem Western Union has. And Western Union doesn't have a problem with with the Bitcoin solves because Bitcoin in this instance is just a transmission mechanism and, and Western Union already has a secure transmission. Nobody steals money from Western Union's wire, just like nobody steals money from Visa's wire. It's always these edges. And so with, with, with the the cost of, uh, of remittance, uh, again, it, when you actually look at like how much it costs to, to move to Kenya, it's still cheaper to use Western Union, for example, than BitPesa. Maybe that will change, but again, the cost structure is going to be the same because you're going to have to deal with compliance if you have a physical network. And if you have a physical network, then you have to pay the agents to go out there and help out, uh, help people cash in and cash out. So yeah, I, I, again, I, I think that the, the animosity towards uh, you know, Western Union, the, the, the CIO, he was actually, he did an interview with Coindesk. He's like, hey, I have some Neptune miners I'm mining. I understand how Bitcoin is. It doesn't solve a problem for us for the last mile, you know, this, this agent network. Maybe maybe somebody will like 37 coins plus coins.ph, but at the end of the day, you know, you might as well just use like Ripple or some other some other network if you're having to do with identities and stuff like that. So again, I'm not saying that you can't squeeze margin somewhere, but I think that uh, the the animosity and the anger towards uh, remittance companies is, is largely unfounded. They provide a value, they provide a utility. Uh, if you think you could do better, then get in line with you know a bunch of other startups like Transferwise or get in, get in line with 1,400 other payment process uh, payment uh, companies startups. Like if you go to AngelList, there's like 1,475 payment uh, startups out there. So there's there, Bitcoin is not being developed in a vacuum. The remittance side is not being built in a vacuum. And I think it, 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 unless we want to end up like Harold Camping, he was this guy in you know 2011 who who promised that the world was going to end, and he had these followers, and, and it didn't end, and so you know the followers became disenchanted. I, I think that. You know, it's, if, if we're if we're selling fear or we're selling anger, uh, the community is going to be largely disappointed and, and maybe even burn out because these these promises won't be upkept. I think you're totally right in, in in many of these points, right? I mean, we see. I, for example, started using a company called Currency Fair, right, for the like from Switzerland to here, etc. And it's really really cheap already, right? So it's it's hard, even if you have like perfect Bitcoin on both sides, perfect liquidity, really, like it, it's just marginal, any benefit you can get out of there. And yeah, with remittances, right? So even if Western Union did use Bitcoin, maybe it was really liquid on the back end. But they already, they already have mechanisms for moving back. I mean, maybe if they accepted Bitcoins in and out, okay, sure. But they don't necessarily need those rails. They already have perfectly secure rails uh, that nobody hacks. Right. I mean, you you may be able. I mean, I, I I don't know exactly. I was meeting with a friend the other day who was actually looking at, at starting a remittance company, uh, but not Bitcoin. Right, it's a traditional, uh, and uh, they do have some costs. It may be possible to be like you know marginally. Maybe they could save like at some point, not right now, like zero point two percent or something like that by using uh, cryptocurrencies on the back end. You know where the rest stays the same. But even that, it's a hard sell to make, and we're far away from that. And the sort of immediate promise, yeah, it's it's difficult, right? Maybe in some niche cases it does work better, but for the most part, it it's um, it's at least not as hard. It's not as easy and obvious and immediate uh, a market for Bitcoin as we think. And and one thing I found was kind of interesting when I was reading about Western Union uh, a while ago was just how often they've changed their business, no? Because they used to do like telegrams and they've really totally reinvented themselves as a company a number of times and they're really, really old. So, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if they've retained that ability to transform and, and leave the old behind and start the new, but uh, at least they have done so in the past. But I think to some extent, you know, what you're talking about is also, uh, so what Tim was talking about, uh, it, it has to do with this ideological uh, component to Bitcoin, which is that, you know, you can send money to anywhere uh, around the world instantly at, at a low cost. And, you know, when 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 you think of that in a practical sense, well, you're most obviously going to go, you know, after a company like Western Union because, you know, they take huge margins on, uh, well, you know, one could argue uh, huge margins on uh, remittance payments to people who, will need the money. So I can see also like how on the other side, you know, um, you know, one, one could argue that Western Union model, uh, the Rimmins model uh, does need to, uh, to, to change. And, you know, much like uh, 
um, much like the long distance market was completely, uh, the phone market was completely uh, disrupted and we can now call everywhere around the world uh, pretty much for free. I mean, this is what we're doing right now. You know, doing this 20 years ago would have cost, uh, I don't know how much <laughs> to do, but, um, you know, I think that as a society, we should be sort of tending towards that uh, in all areas. Yeah, no, I mean, I think obviously it is happening. I mean, I do think that, I mean, I do think the future remains is not going to be Western Union, right? Like, it, I think in the future, you will have this cryptocurrencies, I mean, or, or something like that. It could also be Ripple or something, who knows, Hyperlet or something else, maybe, right? That works in a different way, but it will move in that way. But it's just, I guess, uh, Tim's point, if I'm correct here, is that you know, it's just right now, the reality is different, right? Because the real, the real costs are, are not with the, the value transfer per se, but with the distribution and, and that does sort of stuff. Uh, maintaining this huge agent network, which is obviously very expensive. And, and you don't just get rid of the need for that if you have Bitcoin. But Bitcoin, come on, to the moon. I mean, it's, uh, it's <laughs> there's 250, uh, there's at least 250 mobile payment platforms out there. Uh, that exist in, in, in different countries. I believe I believe uh, there's like 80 countries in Africa that have the, that, that use at least one of them, and they're they're mostly interoperable there. They're, they're, I'm sorry, they're not interoperable there, and that's not because of technology. It's it's largely because of taxes and, 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 and transaction fees that, that, that each country wants to get a hold of, and that's not going to disappear just because you use Bitcoin. I know everyone's like, oh, you get around that, but no. If you if you run an actual business with a storefront with you know uh, actual employees. You are identifiable. You know the, the cops and the officials will come and ask you, "Hey, where are your papers?" So all you're going to do is end up absorbing the same cost structure if you have to do the same exact thing. And again, Bitcoin was designed to get around trusted third parties. But if people want to continue to use it the way they're trying to, you're going to have to build these trusted third parties. So you have this like funny kind of seesaw. Like everyone wants to create value, but when they end up doing is recreate the same middleman or same intermediaries. And uh, they had end up with the same same kind of problems, except this time the the marginal cost is much higher in the long run because of the way the, the block rewards and, and fees work. Okay, well, uh, Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. It was really interesting talking to you, hearing some of your views. Now we will have in the show notes links to to all the things you've talked about, you know, from Hyperledger to the article coming up, and of course your blog. Also, to those who want to check it out, right now it's called offnumbers.com. So O F one F of numbers.com uh, you know you have a lot of nice articles and and some books too uh on bitcoin so i think one is on smart contracts uh do you have another one too you know hey thanks for having me i appreciate it and i appreciate your patience and not not yelling and trying to burn me yet um maybe you'll maybe you're outside my door maybe you'll kick it down and yeah <laughs> Um, and yeah, thanks for your work. Uh, the, you know, the great work you're doing. Keep 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 on writing. Uh, we like and keep on uh, you your work in uh, <laughs> raising the important issues that you know you have to face to make this make this all work and they have to be um, have to be solved. Um, well, yeah, um, and we will be back next week. Uh, if you want to support the show, you know, please follow us on Twitter at epicenterbtc or leave us an iTunes review. Uh, or a third thing you can do is also subscribe to a YouTube channel so you hear uh, about the new shows and uh, you can also see when we do the live hangouts. Thanks so much and we'll be back next week. Bye.